0: You know, everyone likes easy, right? Think about America today, by the way. There's a drug for every problem. It's like, you know, you you have high blood pressure? I got a drug for you. You have high cholesterol? I got a drug for you. You know, oh, you're obese? I have a drug for you. You know, that's that thing where it's like, maybe instead of giving you a drug, you should exercise and eat better I mean imagine that right and so when I think about this well I'm I'm not saying it's dumb but it seems like a drug answer like a drug answer to a problem whereas I think for those of us who work in the space short term medium term long term you know we're really trying to make the portfolios better
1: imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders
2: Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where Alan Dunn and I today are joined by Michael Pomada, President and CEO at Crable Capital Management, as part of our mini series focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, Michael, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to our conversation. How are you doing? How are things in LA on the start of the new year? I love the start of the new year because, uh,
0: you know, it's almost like a rebirth and, you you know, all the mistakes that we made last year, uh, all the things
2: that we did wrong, they're all in the past. There's only a perfect year ahead of us. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, we have some different topics lined up and we'll go kind of back and forth between ourselves here. But before we dive into all of that, maybe for the audience benefit, we can sort of... Um, set the stage for our conversation, and and uh, maybe ask you to talk a little bit about your firm background, and also um, you know the highlights in terms of the strategies you run, and also kind of where the business stands as we head into twenty twenty three.
0: Sure, um, I think Krable is most well known for its founder Toby Krable and um, doing short term diversified quantitative strategies in the futures NFX space. Currently, we manage about 8.2 billion dollars, um, and that's been growing over the last few years. As interest in uncorrelated strategies has become more and more important to say pension funds' portfolios, it's been there's been more and more interest, which has been great, obviously. Um, yeah, but, but mostly we're known for short term, but all the way out the spectrum. So from minutes
2: to hours, all the way out to months and years, you know, for our trend follower. I thought you were going to respond that you're most known for Toby's white suits that he was be wearing to the conferences back in the '90s and the early 2000s. <laughs> Toby
0: is a an amazing dresser. I mean, in case anyone doesn't know that, and he definitely thinks about it. <laughs>
2: Absolutely, indeed. Well, as usual, um, Alan, uh, why don't I kick it over to you to dive into uh, the first uh, real topic of today?
3: Good stuff. Um, well, great. Michael, you mentioned you know, how you're well-known for, I guess, short-term quant strategies. I mean, if you were to sum up, like, what's the philosophy behind your approach to being involved in markets? How would you describe that?
0: Yeah, I think relative to um, some you know quant strategies out there we tend to be observationally based or behaviorally based a lot of the strategies that have been developed over the years from Toby's original strategies to the ones we even developed today are really about observing the markets understanding the situations and then trying to come up with a hypothesis about why the markets might move in a certain way why the participants might react in a certain way to a certain situation and
3: then you know taking advantage of those anomalies interesting and uh I see over your shoulder there you have a copy of something I wanted to bring up. Toby is also, apart from the white white suits, he's probably very well known from the book he wrote Day Trading with Short-Term Price Patterns and Opening Range Breakouts, which it's interesting as you go around the circuit meeting short-term managers, uh, a lot of people reference that book. You know, obviously, I, I can't. it was probably written back in the, the late 80s, I, I think. How relevant is that still today? Is that still that type, type of trading still the underpinning of a lot of the strategies or is is that? Can you comment on that? Sure, of course. Uh, Two things. uh, Number one, uh, there's
0: a funny story about this book that's behind me. Um, I actually, I bought it myself for $1,000 online. Well, I went looking for one, and
3: the the cheapest I can see here is uh, 1,126 euros. Uh, So you you got a deal then. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I I, I already made money, another good trade. But you know, he reserves a funny part. So I told Toby, I said, Toby, I bought your book. I paid $1,000 for you. I said, what in the world are you doing? Why would you do that? I said, Toby, I'm gonna have you sign it. This thing's gonna be worth like two grand. That's an instant profit. And he's like, we need to split that. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, okay, no problem. No, it's a great question. And the truth is that, um, you know, for those who don't know Toby, he is a keen market observer. And a lot of the observations that he's made you know back in the olden days um (laughs) the good old days as we like to say but even today are really poignant and if you're asking me the question of whether or not the concepts that he's written about in this book are still relevant today absolutely and Crabill does take advantage of a lot of the concepts that are there they've advanced over the years I'm not gonna lie it's not like we're running the strategies are in the book um but the reality is is that the concepts of market participants behaviors that create anomalies in the marketplace you can take advantage of you know there, there are a lot of times in observation like he did in this book. Book and you know he still does that today. Um, he's the keenest market observer I know. Um, it's a it's an honor to work with him. Um, and as my mentor, I, I can say I learn something from him
3: every day. And coincidentally, the the other book you have over your left shoulder that I can see, obviously the, the listeners don't have the benefit of, of this, is, is Victor Niederhofer's book, The Education of a Speculator, which is another one of my favorites. And obviously, Toby Krebel spent time working with Victor and. And I guess Victor had that obviously short term uh, behavioral based, uh, but also very much kind of a, a lattice work type approach of finding inspiration in lots of different places. Is that something that's, that, that, that you guys buy into as well?
0: You know, we have something like eight people at the firm who worked at Victor Niederhofer's shop, including myself. Um, It was a joy, and all of us really learned a great deal from working with Victor. He was probably the most eclectic thinker about markets, maybe still is. Most eclectic thinker about markets that I know, I'd say we're a little more narrowly focused. Um, we tend to be more behaviorally based, a little more, um, you know, in tune with the markets. Victor, I felt like he thought about lots of different things from ecology to uh, physics, where, uh, whereas we tend to be a little more focused on the actual movements in the marketplace. Um, that being said, I think <laughs> I think about you know the thing that Toby did for the industry. Really, if you look back 30 years ago, when Um, The firm was founded, you know, one of the big things about Victor, he was so eclectic and amazing at understanding behaviors and finding anomalies, you know, finding anomalies is hard, by the way, you know, finding anomalies is hard, you know, but one thing that Toby did that was really something that Victor could never quite get his head around, no offense to Victor, of course, I I still love him. Is the risk management side and i know we're going to talk about a little bit later but it's it's it was it's the thing you know um we have a bit of a saying inside of crable and it's it's a toby saying and um i recently spoke about it at our at our holiday party which is you know, live to fight another day or keep the drawdown small and the upside will take care of itself. And it's something that we really think a lot about at Crable. Um, and so, you know, it's one thing to be, you know, a great eclectic thinker about anomalies. And it's quite another to be able to exploit those anomalies in the marketplace and do it in a risk adjusted fashion. That's palatable to pension funds and other large investors that are looking for an interesting return stream.
3: Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, bringing it back into the context of managed futures and are you, you know, you touched on being very short term and it's kind of diversifying strategies. Would you say your focus is on purely on generating absolute return or is it absolute return plus some kind of crisis alpha or targeting? uh, Are you specifically targeting zero correlation to equity or is that an offshoot of, of, of your strategies or how do you think about all of that in terms of program objectives?
0: Yeah, interesting question. Um, I think a couple of things. Number one, what is true about our short-term trading is that over the years, it's it's, it's it is not by design that we're zero correlated to stocks. Um, we do have a program uh, that is. Negatively correlated to the stock market, where we use our alpha to try to beat the S and P, and also obviously trade a lot of different markets to get diversification. And that product has been relatively successful uh, for us. But you know, the truth is, is that um, one one aspect of our trading, and this is an aspect of all of managed features or a lot of managed features, if you think about, like what what role do we play in the clients' portfolios? And part of that is being. Long vol most of the time. I know, you know, there's an argument about being long vol and trend following. It's not always long vol. We know that. Um, if you look at, you know, January, February 2018, you know, you had the big up January and then a big, you know, give back in February. That's a market sell off. Therefore, you were, um, in that case, long stocks and short vol. But the truth is, is that majority of the strategies in our space, which I think is one of the coolest benefits of our space, um, is that we're mostly long vol. And no, it's not by design. But one thing I would say, particularly on the shorter end, think, you know, 20 days and below or something like that in terms of holding period, or even in adapting to a situation, think March 2020. Now, all the trend followers had a great March 2020. We happen to have a very good March 2020. Very adaptive, right? And that's, that's part of the design of the program. But the reality is, is that Being long vol oftentimes means making money when the stock market goes down because oftentimes the vol is more explosive there. I'm not saying we're not gonna make money when the stocks go up. I mean, you can look at our long track record to see that that's not the case. But the reality is, is that the marketplace oftentimes makes a lot of mistakes when the market's falling. Rather than going up, and so I think it, it gives all of us that little bit of um, interesting, diversifying aspects of the portfolio that are very cool for institutional investors' portfolios or anybody's anyone's portfolios for that matter,
2: I, including my own, you know <laughs> who doesn't love it Niels yeah, no, I was just going to pick up on 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 some of these points um, now. Uh, as, as 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 you already mentioned, you run different types of uh, strategies: some short-term, some are more in the trend-following space. But actually, I think this is relevant for all of them uh, in some sense, and it's. It's based a little bit on on a paper that Cliff Asnes came out with last uh, year, where he's basically saying, you know, or he's—I think—he's raising the question: Are we becoming too concerned about the sharp? <laughs> right? I mean, essentially, and 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 making choices that may look good in the short term, but actually are detracting from our long-term performance. So, I'd love to hear your your thoughts about um, that whole uh, kind of topic.
0: You know, it's an interesting problem because if you think about what happens in the industry and this has been true forever i think um but you know there's oftentimes a little bit of performance chasing so if a concept like trend following or like maybe a middle term that's not trend following but has alpha maybe it has a period of time where the markets aren't as fruitful for those types of strategies and then people will say, oh, this is disappointing. Um, you know, look at, look at 2021 as an example. You had stocks straight up that year. And, you know, gosh, everybody made money in bonds, too. So, uh, and their real estate and their private equity, which always makes money, right? Don't you guys know? Um,
2: yeah. Um, there's a great cliff ass in this piece, actually. That's his next paper, by the way, you know, about private equity. I I did. It's a great piece, actually, this morning, I think, or
0: maybe it was yesterday or last week that came out about private equity never has to mark to market. So what's going on with that? Um, That makes sense. Um, But but I think, um, you know, what I think, you know, the thing that people need to step back and really consider, and you guys know this as much as anyone in the world, which is, hey, what's the best portfolio going to be for the next 10 years? I'm not, not next week, not tomorrow, not did we catch this down move on CPI day, you know, in September, right or wrong. That's, you know, that's a little bit of a noise because the truth is we're not talking about sharp ratios that are five here. It's not like we're gonna make money every single day. The truth is you're, tr- you're looking for anomalies that persist over long periods of time. Now, I'm not saying you should stick around with people who lose, you know, lots and lots of money year after year after year, just because you hope one day they're gonna make you money in, in a tail hedged fashion think, you know, Nassim Taleb has been talking about this for years, right? Uh, Victor, he always warred about this particular topic. But the reality is if you can get a positive drift was some kind of interesting, diversifying return stream, you should be thinking long term, not short term. So therefore, if it's if there's a period of time where trend following or our strategies happen to underperform by a little bit, I mean, I think you kind of have to understand the long term effects of that. Now, look, if you believe the anomaly has gone away and you believe they're not possible, okay, I understand, I don't agree with you, but the reality is is that if you believe that it's there and you believe in the manager you've chosen to execute that strategy, no matter who it is, and there are a lot of great ones in our space, then I think you have to really think big big picture, longer term, and think about the construction of your portfolio in every
2: different market environment, not when the S&P goes up every single day. You mentioned something important there, namely construction of your portfolio, and let's bring that back to sharp. As far as I remember, Sharp was never invented on a, you know, to be used on a single strategy. It was used you know, for a portfolio, yet we use it on single strategies today. Is there, in your opinion, a better m- stat or, or matrix that people should think about when they look at our space, maybe specifically, rather than Sharp?
0: Great question. I think um, you know, Sharp can fool you. And for those of us who have worked in this business for a bit, um you know you know that you know it can you can have a a two sharp three sharp forever until it blows up and it's like oh wow i i I, you know i I, i'm making i'm making money in the basis trade every single day until mid-march uh you know 2020 and hey look basis trade players out there got a little lucky with the fed because they were on the border of like really having some steep losses and so you know for me that's a great example of where the back test is gonna look perfect the the reality the realized returns have been pretty good, right guys? I mean, come on, the basis trade works. I mean, it's a concept that's not horrible. Any kind of carry where there's a drift in your favor? Yeah, we know about that. But we also know it has these pitfalls. And I think that's where it gets really tricky when you're looking at back tests of strategies or short volume in particular. But you know, in, in general, you really need to be think of, thinking about how should this portfolio behave in different types of market environments? Is it gonna get every one of them right? Probably not. But is it gonna get them the preponderance of them right? And is it gonna protect you a little bit um, against that downside. In other words, when it gets it wrong, is it going to lose all your money? Is that what we're talking about here? Or are we talking about a strategy that's going to have a small drawdown that it will likely get out of when you look back across the last 30 years? I mean, some of the people that you interview on this, obviously we've been around for over 30 years, but, and some people you've interviewed on this program, they, you know, they've been around for longer than that. And so I think that's the way you have to think about it. Rather than thinking about what's the exact measure to get right, I think you really have to think about what are they trying to, what are they trying to do? What are they taking the advantage of? How do we expect it to act in these types of situations and then, do you you know? Does that portfolio manager
2: program deliver on what they're saying it's going to do?
3: Alan, let's dive into one of your favorite topics. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you touched on how hard it is to uh, unearth anomalies, and so the, the whole research process and. Um, you said at the outset, you know, you, you know, a lot of your strategies tend to be more observationally based around behaviours. Um, you know, g- g- give us a sense on, 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 on how you unearth that. Has it become more difficult? I'm thinking, you know, if you go back to when maybe Toby Crable wrote that book in the first time, you were able to observe the traders a lot more readily. You know, we used to work on Um, you know trading floors in in banks or we were you know people were involved in the pit uh, at the exchange and you could physically see observe the 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 behavioral biases the fear the greed the market reactions now so much of the trading is obviously in it's quant driven it's uh, in hedge funds so there's not these centralized uh, areas so does that make that kind of observational behavioral focus more difficult or what's your process for unearthing these anomalies
0: yeah you can kind of think of it as almost being circular in the following way right um you know back in the olden days maybe it was a easy, more easily observed more you know but you didn't have as much data and you didn't have the types of tools we have today to really look hard for the alphas so if you think about if if you were to ask me this question like do you think alphas degrade through time the answer is obviously yes you know they have to degrade through time at some pace um i think though in the end you know given the tools we have today and the additional data sets we have today i think probably you know while while easy ideas aren't quite as easy as they were a long time ago being able to isolate a, a core idea Um, A core anomaly that exists in the marketplace is is almost like easier today furthermore today we have a lot more data at our fingertips I'm talking about book data I'm talking about spread data I'm you know we can go all the way down to the microstructure to really think about what we're trying to take advantage of here for instance you know if you think about predicting flows which is distinctly something we do you know we really want to say oh my goodness someone is buying a lot and that's likely to persist. Now, it could be for various reasons. Risk purposes, people are scared, people are greedy. I mean, there are lots of different reasons why people might be interacting in the marketplace, and there might be an anomaly related to it. But these days, you can get all the way down to that granular level. And each piece of the data tells you a little story about what's going on with those participants. Um, and so I think from, the, from my perspective, if you ask me, and this is a funny question, I if you ask me this funny question, you said like, Michael, what was your most productive year in research? Because anomalies have been going away. I mean, look at all these guys out there. High frequency traders are eating away your alpha. I mean, it's so scary. Oh, my gosh. I wish we were back in the pits again, which I disagree with, by the way. We can talk about that if you want. But my point is, is that today we can be much more observant of what's going on. Yes, you can't be the sucker at the table with those guys. You need to be really paying attention to what's going on with the flows. And yeah, there's more to take advantage of. If you ask me this question, what's my, our most pro- productive year of research in, the, in our Grable Capital Management's history? 2022 that was our most productive year in our history and think about our long history of making money I mean we we've done amazing work over the years right we got lucky you know some good work thoughtful work 2022 was our best year in terms of research yeah
3: in terms of and research what, about uncovering that? alphas yeah, yeah. why was that understanding markets why, why do you think that, that 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 was the case
0: you know I think, um, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, more new data, I think for us is, uh, is one piece, but you know, just continue to observe the markets The marketplaces change over time. The participants change over time. We just already talked about a big, sh- you know, C shift there that when the pits ele- to electronification, uh, now high-frequency traders, you know, things change. And so you have to be constantly observing. So it just happened to be a year where I think we p- picked up on a number of different
3: concepts that were relevant to our style of trading. Mm. And I mean, when you're talking about picking up and observing, is that literally four or five key portfolio managers watching the screens all day long? Or what does that look like?
0: You know, it could be a couple of things. It's kind of funny. Um, I think we may be a little bit different than other people. And when I answer this question, mostly because we do think uh, a little bit more in the short term, even if we apply the concepts in the longer term as well, um, which is something like the following. When we lose money, Whenever we lose, we're a very competitive group, by the way, Crabble Calf Management, we're extremely competitive. We believe in continuous improvement. We really want the strategy to get better every single day. It really does start with Toby. He has this thing where it's like, no, no, I don't care if I put this strategy in back in 1992 and it's a sacred cow. No, no, that's not the way he thinks about the markets. He thinks, let's make this strategy better. Let's find another better version of it. Let's expand it. Let's go shorter with it. Let's go longer with it. Let's really like, extract the alpha that's there. So I love that about him. It's a it's a thought that permeates our worldview. We are a desiloed firm, so we don't have a lot of individual PMs working on individual portfolios. We desiloed the firm a number of years ago. It was a big change for Crable. Um, I came in, you know, to the firm in 2008 as a portfolio manager, a siloed portfolio manager. But you know. The reality of the markets is they've gotten a lot harder. You know, in terms of going and extracting the alpha, finding the the ideas, it's hard. You know, it's it's not easy. So what we found was the siloed version of our firm was less efficient at exploiting the alphas that were available in the most appropriate way. So we actually had to de-silo and expand the team a little bit to make sure the idea of proliferation was, and implementation, that's important. And I, and I can I can tell you a funny story there if you'd like, but it, it makes sure the implementation was the, the thing that, that captured the most alpha for our clients which in the end of the day, that's the most important thing. And I think it's been a magical experience from our perspective. Again, I we just had our best year in research ever. I really, and I, a lot of it is from, you know, being de-siloed.
3: Okay. But and you mentioned kind of idea generation, preparation, implementation. So like, it, it's it's kind of like a creative process, really, if you, I mean, how do you get the right culture? How do you get the right operational setup in place okay de silo in it, it sounds like one thing presumably incentives are, are important for people but but to get those insights I guess um, is there anything operationally you can do to, to to put in place to 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 get a better environment for all of that
0: well I think you know it starts with obviously you know this it starts with the team the people I mean our team our research team is amazing very competitive you know we have a saying um, I can't. I don't think I can use our exact phrasing, but for, for those at Crable that are listening to this, they'll know. But it's personal accountability, and um, I, I hear, here's the sanitized version of the saying that we have, which is, you know, when 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 someone when we lose money tomorrow, whose fault is it? And the answer is, it's my fault. And you can throw an expletive right in the middle of that which is which is that every researcher has to walk in feeling personal responsibility for the p l that's occurring in the portfolio today yes i recognize it may not be their strategy or their alpha idea that's losing money but the reality is you have to walk in feeling Like it's yours. It's not somebody else's problem that's sitting in this other special room over here. It's not these other guys or these other girls over here. No, no, it's yours. And if there's a problem with the portfolio, we made mistakes today, we lost money, we clearly made mistakes. You know what, go figure it out. It's not somebody else's problem, it's your problem. And um, that's a big mantra for us um, is to really emphasize personal responsibility or personal accountability for our P&L on a daily basis. You know, people talk about the siloed approach versus the desiloed approach, and I, I, I want to tell this anecdotally just for a second. It's kind of funny. Yeah, look, siloed, you get perfect orthogonal concepts coming out of each, they don't talk to each other, so each portfolio group comes up with the ideas. Well, let me tell you what happens at the portfolio level when you have siloed PMs, and this is just from personal experience at Cradle Capital Management. What happens is each siloed PM has the following three attributes of their portfolio. one. They find stuff that toby already found i mean the truth is toby's amazing so it's not surprising that that would be the case but yeah you find ideas that toby's already found okay so we we have those ideas okay two they find simple ideas well what are some ideas oh well you might put trend following in there, okay? Good idea, because that's a, good, that's a great alpha concept This worked for a long, long time. So the trend following, oh, wait, it's another one, Buy the dip, by the dip, my favorite, okay? It's like, you, by the way, if you use machine learning for research, which we do, if you use machine pure machine learning and give it a data set and then say, go find me a strategy that works. Like, by the dip is the strategy it comes up with every time. Like, oh, miraculously, by the dip works, I can't believe it. But the thing is, is that in the simple ideas category, you get a bunch of by the dip and other, like what I would think of as basic concepts. And then the third part of their portfolio is amazing. Orthogonal, interesting, uncorrelated alpha. Now, let's say you have six PMs that are siloed in that way, right? What do you get when you aggregate that portfolio without de-siloing them? Well, you get over allocation to Toby ideas, you get over allocation to simple ideas, an under-allocation to the orthogonal interesting new ideas. And so you end up with an inefficient portfolio from the standpoint of, re- of good realized, the best realized returns for the clients. So when we de-siloed, it was immediately obvious that we needed to down-allocate some of the simpler ideas, down-allocate some things where we were already doing the trades and then really exploit the orthogonal ideas. And that's that's been super helpful for our Sharp ratio, frankly. Um, I feel like that was off track, but I know I had to fine. tell that story at the very minimum.
3: Just just a couple of final ones on on the whole research bit one, you touched on machine learning and you know going back to you know maybe three, four years ago, machine learning everybody's putting it forward as the next you know greatest thing and and it kind of comes and goes in the market as, as a great hope um, now obviously you, you reference how you use it, so you're curious to get a sense on how in what way you use it. and the second area, you know, for short-term managers, it's a lot of talk about, you know, the importance of execution, you know, and, and how how you how you d- enhance your execution capabilities. So curious to hear the kind of work you've done on that, as 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 I know it has been a focus uh, for for your firm.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. One. Um, yeah, and so machine learning, I think. Um, <laughs> You're right. It's like a fad, right? Like every year there's a new uh, you know, machine learning portfolio that's gonna it may has the magical unicorn. It's gonna it's gonna make money every single day forever. And then you know, 2 or 3 years later, think Teza. Um somehow they're no no longer running that strategy. Um, and so, okay, the truth is we've tried using machine learning, what I would call pure machine learning, you know, think machine learning technique, data, mix them together, magical unicorn, you know, and if if you ask me about the 10 years that we've been doing that, I'm going to tell you right now, we've had limited success. Um, You know, it's hard to admit that. I mean, we've tried a bunch, let me tell you. Um, And but it's never while that all those inroads, you know, while they've not produced a negative return for us, they haven't produced the kind of consistent, persistent sharp ratio and return stream that you need to have to be in business. And so I'd say (laughs) Normally, <laughs> it's disappointing, um, but also a reality, um, and I don't think anyone's quite solved that yet in the investment world. Uh, you know, obviously there may be someone listening today. It's like, oh, we solved it. Okay, you know what? Great, no problem. Um, for us, I will tell you though, we do use it a lot, and but I'll tell you how. It's a little bit different. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure there are others out here that do this, but look, we have a long history of finding interesting alphas in the marketplace. So instead of g- taking machine learning process and then giving it some data and say go, what we did. And, you know, this was done by one of our researchers, an amazing guy, uh, such a pleasure and honor to work with him. But he said, okay, hold on a second. Let me take all these alphas, stick them up here in this box, and say, okay, okay, machine learning process, crable alphas designed over the last 30 years, and every year we add more. De-siloing. Think about this just for a second. First year we ever did this, we, hadn't, we were siloed, so we only had one portfolio to draw the alphas from. And then, and then have it produce strategies for you. So you're gonna get a credible flavor from the concepts that is observable, money-making ideas that have a track record of success, that are real things. You know, they're not bullshit things, sorry. Um, they're, not, they're not BS things in the marketplace. They're real things that have made money through time. That process was fairly magical for us. It created a brand new set of strategies, new set of thinking. Sometimes it combined alphas from the early days. Think of Toby Observations from the early 90s with an idea that came from an intern in 2012. But the thing is those ideas had really never crossed streams before. And it said, well, guess what? Instead of holding for four hours, like we wanted to in the first place, actually you want to hold that, that alpha is so powerful together. You want to hold that trade now for five days. That's how powerful that alpha was together. And so it was a big learning experience for us, frankly and when you first do it you know obviously cravel we're <clears throat> we're um cautious when we do things like this this is a long time ago now i'm telling a story that's 8 to 10 years old you know and but, but with such good success we've been able to exploit a number of anomalies that frankly we were not able to exploit before as you know the flagship has about 2 billion in it gemini has above 4 billion dollars gemini uses a lot of those concepts and uses longer holds and given that the firms generally you know we had been on the shorter end a lot of the machine learning or machine learning assisted alphas that we created create a big chunk of the newer strategies we run in particular in gemini and contra
3: interesting um so it sounds like the power of the machine learning is well obviously it's the computational power of checking all of these various combinations uh, and and seeing what's relevant in the current markets is that it 100%
0: 100% yeah. right, and we, do, we redo the process. Hey, markets change, we have new data, we have more markets. All those things go in, and, and we are constantly basically cycling through brand new strategy creation for the firm across all of its products, including our trend follower. We we really do use machine learning and all across the entire firm.
3: It's been eye-opening. Yeah, and the follow-up question then was around execution. And uh, the, obviously, that's been a big focus across the short-term managers uh, space. Yeah. I think, first of all, we could do an
0: entire podcast on execution. It is one of my favorite topics. Um, I really do think it's so important. Um, And, you know, to your point there to say something about the end of it, which is that, you know, execution isn't cheap. It's not cheap. The high frequency trading guys spend hundreds of millions of dollars on this stuff. Why? Because that's where they make all of their money, you know, and so they have to spend that kind of money. Okay, okay. For us guys who trade in futures that are holding day, 10 days, trend following, maybe it's three months, six months, maybe depending on your time, maybe even longer than that. Okay. The reality of execution, you know, is that the shorter you go, the more important it is to extract your alpha without giving away your intentions to the marketplace. As soon as they figure out your intentions, they're going to come and get you. Buyer beware, you know? And oh, by the way, i wanna make a comment. I, I think this is like really funny. People laugh at me, they're like, oh, high frequency trading is evil. I wish we could just go back to the pits. No, okay. The guys who worked in the pits, which include Toby Crable, by the way, the guys in the pits weren't your best friend. They weren't backstopping the markets. Does anyone remember 1987? I mean, they weren't standing in there and saying, no, no, guys, we'll hold this market up. I wanna make sure that there's never a crash. Now, the reality of hybrid trading is they're very, very similar to the guys who worked in the pits. It just goes a lot faster. So you have to get a bit better. You have to make the investments. And to that point, you do. You need to be you know, relatively cutting edge hardware. You need to be co-located. You need to be thinking about your latency. You need to be thinking about how fast you are changing what you're doing in the marketplace. If you do something for too long, if you do the same thing every time you execute, they will come find you. There is no question. They are looking for you and they will come find you. For Krable, we literally spend tens of millions of dollars on this particular part of our business i think it's been a huge differentiator between us and other you know and others from our short-term trader short-term programs to our trend follower we believe that our execution costs for our trend follower are the lowest or if not around the lowest in the space if you think about adding back and i mentioned this in the email if you think about adding back one percent per year to a sharp ratio of 0.8 on an eight vol target or a 10 vol product you're talking about a massive increase when you compound it through time. And so for us, I feel like Crable's really lucky. We, since we operate so heavily in the short term, we have to make the massive investment that is needed for that program to make money. We have to make that investment for that program. And then all of the rest of the programs get to ride on the coattails. You know, I, I know you guys don't have a lot of like new startup, um, new startups on this program. You mostly talk to people who've been in the business for a bit, you know, have experience managing money. I've made money for clients think about if you're a startup doing something that's similar to trend following or of that ilk and now you have to go spend tens of millions of dollars on your execution oh good luck good luck it's really hard to do i think it's one of the reasons there's been consolidation across our space Trend following, etc. The bigger, the big guys have gotten mostly bigger, with some obviously exceptions. But mostly, the money has gone towards the guys that have done this for a bit. Um, and I think one of the reasons is they're the ones that can afford to do the work. Who who can afford? If you're a startup, who can, who can afford to have a co-location around the world, multiple sites, five sites around the world? Who can afford to do that? It's
2: expensive, truthfully. Yeah. No. I mean, this is fascinating. I want to go to another topic that I actually also think is quite fascinating. Uh, one, one of your strategies is in the uh, SOCGEN CTA Index, and that's actually how Alan and I started thinking about it. Was to say, well, um, you know, it's been a great year for for the industry, for the for, for the indices, not just the CTA Index, but but so on and so forth. But there's something else going on with the CTA Index, the SOCGEN CTA Index in particular, and that is that last year it became evident that one firm that was replicating that particular index saw massive inflows. And of course, the argument was no single manager risk. Uh, we just uh, spread it across uh, that. We we just look at the returns of the index and then we do some kind of linear regression and we put it into this box and we just need f- f- 14 uh, futures markets to replicate the exposure. And we're always going to be... Well, I don't think they say always, but we are, are expected to outperform uh, in the long run because it's cheaper. So couple of things one is how does it feel to be replicated but also what do you think about replication and if you have concerns about it which frankly that's what we hear uh, the the other guests on on this series so far say that it could change um I'd love to hear your 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 thoughts about it
0: yeah i <laughs> i mean you know, it's it's funny just thinking about the details there. Yeah, 14 markets and like we do some regressions and let's go. Um, you know, I think it's a fool's errand. Um, I do. I think that um, this concept that you're going to be able to get the majority of the returns and then charge low fees. I, I think that that. Thinking is very problematic. I, for me personally, if I were investing my own money, I'd rather just pick a few managers I think are great and have a good track record of making money and also managing the risk well, um, rather than a replication and pay a little bit of additional fees. What do you get for it? I mean, that's the big question. What do you What are you getting? Um, I, I think you're you're getting actual alpha thoughts, you know, thoughts that are a little bit deeper than what they can pick up in a regression. And while that concept, you know, you know, everyone likes easy, right? Think about America today, by the way, there's a drug for every problem. It's like, you know, you, you have high blood pressure. I got a drug for you. You have high cholesterol. I got a drug for you. You know, Oh, you're obese. I have a drug for you. You know, that's that thing where it's like, I'm not only to sing loud America in this particular case, but it seems to be a theme here, which is like, Oh, maybe instead of giving you a drug, you should exercise and eat better i mean imagine that right and so when i think about this um like the replication concept well i'm I'm not saying it's dumb i i it's it's fine i get it those guys are trying to make money it's fine i get it but it seems like a drug answer, like a drug answer to a problem. Whereas I think for those of us who work in this space, short term, medium term, long term, you know, we're really trying to make the portfolios better. I mean, ask all, you know, you ask all the competitors, you guys get you get to talk to them, right? And you can ask them. It's like, well, is the portfolio the same as it was five years ago? Have you found any new alphas? Are you adapting through time? Are there new pieces of information that might be helpful or not helpful? You know, and I think the truth is, is that all of us try really hard to get better. We're very, all very competitive about being in this, this business we all feel very fortunate to work in it too by the way it's a great business to be in but you have to keep trying to get better and i think that a concept that you know is is just replicating while it might in an easy year like i think 2022 kind of was in an easy year it's not surprising that it would have pretty good performance and yeah okay it's so it's a good marketing vehicle they can sell it easily we can replicate everything it's really cheap you don't have to worry about paying these guys they're all driving around ferraris right because we pay them all these fees no, no, that's not true. <laughs> we spend 12 hours a day thinking about the markets and managing our risk and understanding new alpha concepts that we can make our products better for, our, better for the clients. And so I just don't think you can replicate that, that type of feeling that most of us have in this space. I'm not saying everyone, you know, I mean, is there a manager out there? I, I don't know, but you know what? The ones I know, I really like them. You know, they're hardworking. They care about their clients. They care about making money for, for their clients. And I think that's really important.
2: Yeah, no, no, uh, absolutely fair points. Uh, another thing that um, we um, we debate, uh, and maybe this time around, I may have to ask you to wear your more trend following hat than your short term hat. I don't know, but we we often talk a lot about how many markets should you trade as a trend follower? And there are very different uh, sort of thoughts about it. Uh, some people trade hundreds of markets now. Some people stick to the kind of 50, 60 classical, highly liquid markets, etc., etc. Um, I've always been on record saying I don't really see the difference in the numbers. I, of course, the performance will be different at times, but in the long run, I don't see that one or the other group actually performs better uh, as such. Um, maybe, actually, if I think about it now that I uh, talk to you, uh, I would say maybe the classical, the, sh- the smaller uh, universe have performed better when I just think about the names in the long run. But be that as it may, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it, what you might gain, what you might lose, um, other than the obvious, which, of course, is capacity. I understand why people would want to do it for capacity reasons, of course.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you, um, you guys probably know this, but I'm the one that designed our program called Advanced Trend, Crabill Advanced Trend. Um, and so I have some very specific thoughts about this. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Overall, the long history, you know maybe they're break even against each other. It's true. Um, I will tell you, one thing that we sort of think is that you never know where the alpha is going to come from. And so uh, one of my thoughts when I designed the program was that if I could get the diversification, I would go ahead and take it. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, it's always these things where it's like, well, Michael, uh, do you think it's going to add uh, you know, 5% per year? It's like, come on, man, no. definitely not. First of all, a lot of cross correlation between these markets. Let's talk about that for a second. We do trade hundreds of markets, as you mentioned, in ours. Um, We do try to get a flat-ish allocation to the four major sectors. Um, And I think you're right. Sometimes you're going to have a year where if you have Bitcoin in your, you know, Bitcoin features in your trend follower, you're going to outperform because Bitcoin has been interesting for trend following for a bit, both on the upside and then on the downside. Um, So yeah, sometimes there's going to be that differentiation between the two. When I really step back and look look at it obviously you know i chose diversification but I, I, if you're asking me which what's more important execution costs or diversification i'm probably going to go execution costs so you know that that tells you my level of like w- feeling about it. I love trading all the markets. I think you never know. We you know, in short term especially we tend to think you never know where alpha is going to come from. A market may be a bad performer for a number of years, and then suddenly it starts lighting up, and you really need to be there. You know, people clients ask us, we lost money in the yen for a number of years, and people are like, why well, are you guys trading? Why are you guys trading the yen? It's like, oh, and then it was our best market ever the, the following year. It's like that's why we keep trading again. You know, or you think about like, uh, a, you know, gas was really exciting for a many, many years for all of us, and then got kind of boring. It really got kind of boring for everybody, right? It kind of settled down there, and did nothing for, a number, for two years or something like that. And then suddenly it was exciting again, and guess what, you know, it created interesting opportunities for all of our strategies. So um, I think we tend to be a little bit more, I guess if I was gonna make a mistake, I'd go with more diversification.
2: I'd rather make that mistake than the one where I'm like, oh, I'm missing out on new interesting new markets or whatever. Yeah, no, that's fair. Actually, I want to stay on the topic of of markets, uh, even if I'm jumping a little bit ahead, Alan. But I, I think you you know exactly why I'm doing it, and that's another theme that kind of has gone through our industry. And I think personally, it's a really difficult one to answer, and it but it does relate to markets, and that's ESG because a lot of people they have to uh, they have to have a an opinion, they have to follow certain rules when it comes to ESG, but CTAs. Does it really apply to us? And and of course, and and again, I've been on record for so I can I can certainly repeat that. I have had my concerns, to be frank, uh, when it comes to say Chinese markets. I know it became, uh, and I don't even know if you guys trade China, so so just just keep that in mind. But but um, uh, if certainly a, a few years ago, this, a lot of these Chinese markets did really well, so there was a return dispersion, and and you had to kind of justify if you didn't trade them and so on and so forth. But at the same time. I did notice that a lot of these bigger firms was, were talking about ESG and and all the compliance and everything they do. And I was thinking, well, if you trade China, does it really fit into this ESG thesis? And I don't want to put you in a, in a corner or anything like that. I have no idea. But I'm just curious because I find it to be a difficult topic when it comes up. Yeah. Um, gosh, what an interesting few years
0: it has been with ESG. Um, I find it a little bit fascinating. Um, And I I can tell you something. I obviously answer these questions for clients all the time. Um, One thing I want to say is like I think we should start with like separating ESG to two different categories. Think about the product construction. You obviously know that it's going to be like, well, if you're a long-short equity guy, this is going to matter a lot more because you have individual names. Okay. Um, But I did want to separate out. like Think about what your firm does in terms of ESG. I think we really as a firm, um, we very much focus on it. We have a committee we really do think about um, the pieces of all the pieces of esg and how to be a great firm for our world and i think that's important okay going on to our trading and this is the part this is the question you're really asking i give this the following example so let's just say we decide that uh, high prices for food is bad because it's bad for people right like you're not well inflation and so that means that when we buy corn that, that's bad for people. And so it's like, okay, okay, you can't buy corn anymore. You can only short corn. Okay. You know, we're neutral to all of our markets. So it's like almost all CTAs were neutral to the markets. And so, oh, you can only short corn. Okay. Well, like the farmers, by the way, lose when you are the only one, you know, if you're, you're shorting corn, you're hoping it's going to go down with, like, the farmers are a part, too, a part of it too. And so for, in my mind, it's, it's a little bit tricky to say that, oh, you can't buy corn. You can only sell corn because there's the other part of the supply chain. And then you say, okay, well, Michael, no, 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 like, forget it. Crude is crude oil is dirty. You can't trade that anymore. And I so, said like, well, i mean but let's start that over again okay because you know making a market efficient helps all the participants including the people that are trying to you know they're trying to help the the economy that are pro esg if there's no market made and again go back to the corn example you have kellogg buying and you you have your consumers you've got the producers you've got the farmers there's lots of people so for us to be involved as ctas creating a market I'm not sure, given that we're neutral to the market, I'm not sure you can say we're sort of like, we're not pro-dirty, and we're not, we're not con-dirty, but we help create a marketplace that allows people to come in and trade um, th- those instruments, even if they want to be expressing a concept like, you know, we want to have a clean world. And I think that's important. And that's, I think it's a less known, it's like a, it's like a small idiosyncratic fact where it's like, you can't just put a market into a category and call it bad. I just think, I think you have to think about what are, what are, what are our roles in all of this? You know, you know what what is our what are what is our part of the participation?
2: I I, I very much agree, Michael, and uh, it's interesting. Uh, we were talking about it uh, as well, uh, of course, not with every single manager because sometimes we we have to skip a, a topic. But but we actually brought it up with Harold at TransTrend the other day, and uh, and I thought his comments were quite uh, constructive because he. Like you kind of just said, well, you have to remember our role is we are carrying risk or we are, you know, warehousing risk for people, etc. Et I can't remember his exact words. And and that is a role which is kind of neutral in some ways, but it's super important for the marketplace as a whole. And And I kind of like that. Um, whether it's going to fly with investors or not, I have no idea. But I, I like this and I think it's important to talk about it um, so we all better understand um, you know how to how to address it, but anyways, I appreciate the the thoughts, Alan. Back to uh, to you.
3: Yeah. So, um, Michael, at the outset, you were talking about we, we were talking about you know Victor Niederhofer and then the missing piece, the risk management, I guess, and the importance of staying alive and living to fight another day. So, a couple of things. One, maybe give us a sense on you know what, what what are the process, what are the key metrics that you think about in terms of managing risk. You know, is it gross exposures you're targeting a certain level of volatility uh, and then secondly draw a drawdown and drawdown management and you know the short-term space like like trend have had periods of that have been tough like 2011 to 2013 you know 2016 17 it's very low vol environment so you can have kind of a macro environment that's difficult but equally you know i guess the the the, the, the strategies themselves are subject to decay so what are the what are the strategies around drawdown control is it around deleveraging obviously it's intensive research to unearth what's happening but you know when when strategies go into a tough period like that what what do you as a firm how do you think about addressing that
0: yeah it's a great question um one thing i think that is true if you know just speaking for crable here you know we've gotten a lot better at thinking about it you know it, it it's um you know back in i guess back in like the older days it was a little the alpha was a little easier um you know these days with more markets and like you know, maybe maybe non-normal distribution of returns, which I think is an interesting versus say, a skewy skewy returns. I think that's also interesting from a risk management perspective. But we, we use multiple levels. There's a short answer to this question. We we do um, you know we do vol target as you pointed out. Most CTAs do at some level vol target. Um, we do allow some flexibility. Um, for instance, we so I you know we basically set the portfolio given our expectation of the strategies long-term standard deviation and then let them go and then you know we hopefully over the long run hit the vol target um there are a couple things that we do maybe a little differently than others we do also use what i would think of as like a high frequency value at risk model and this value at risk model is a covariance based based matrix it's it's updating instantaneously so you can imagine you have some positions on and then there are a lot of vol comes into the marketplace even if you didn't trade anymore your portfolio would be seen as more volatile and we control our portfolios at that distinct level at all times um uh, now the truth is we allow our intraday basically instantaneous expected vol to move much higher than our average target because some days are going to be lower than target some days are going to be higher than target Today a little bit higher than the target, um, and that's going to happen through time, given the opportunity set. So, however, we do still truncate um, the top end of, of our vol target. So we have a vol target of eight to ten for our shorter term products. We will allow them to go up to about twenty, and then at that point we're saying, you know what, we have enough of the risk on. We've done a lot of analysis of this. We have a long history, obviously, of trading. We know a lot about what what kinds of returns you should expect. If you think about, or like on, uh, you know, I'm going to add one more position at when I'm at twenty vol instantaneous vol. is that a valuable ad and the short answer is you do get deterioration of um, your risk adjusted return at the top end Um, so given that we know that we we've geared our portfolio to express the risk in a certain way and deliver a return Uh, one thing that is part of the design of our trend follower advanced trend um is that we we have a belief and it really you know, in the end, it comes back to us being a little bit shorter term thinking. But here's a belief that we have. We believe that sometimes sharp ratio of trend following is gonna be high, think two plus, like last year. And sometimes it might be low, maybe even negative, okay? So what, in our trend follower, one way that we gear the portfolio is we allow its target volatility to fluctuate up when, when, thus, you know, obviously systematic, automated, et cetera, et cetera, we're not touching this, but when our alpha signals believe that this is a little bit stronger trend up toward the two end. When it believes that that's the case, it wants to have a little more vol on. So we, we actually allow the vol target to move. And I think we're one of the few that do this. There are a lot of people who don't vol target at all. And yeah, I look, I we can find them. They're, they were up 70% last year. You know, God, I understood. But but for those of us who are target, in our case, 15 vol for advanced trend, we actually allow it to fluctuate based on the alpha availability. This has helped us in a few instances outperform our peers because we're allowing that that flexibility given our alphas the alpha concept behind it really believe it's a high sharp environment
3: And then what about the the drawdown control and you know when when the space goes into a tough period and your own strategies you know uh, some managers like to will have thresholds where they delever the portfolio so that's one do you believe in that or not? Um, secondly you know will you retire certain strategies and then, you know, is that just purely based on a, I guess, a stop loss type uh, or max drawdown type approach? And um, I suppose, how do you, how do you manage, you know, the, the the question of whether, whether something is broken or just you're, you're drawing out of the the, the negative side of the, the the tail. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that, that that last one's a really fun question and I have have an answer to that. Uh, Just on the, on the drawdown side, we do, we do tend to down lever a bit um, as we go into a drawdown. It's, it's, systematic and you know and it's, it's it is a part of the program uh we do believe that there can be periods of time for the shorter term programs where the alphas aren't as available and therefore you you should then all you have is trading costs right okay so if you have no alpha and a bunch of trading costs all you're gonna get a negative return stream so yeah we do t- tend to manage that because Um, But we wanna be very dynamic and adaptive. So short answer to your question is yes, we will bring the leverage down as we go into a drawdown. But actually, if there are interesting situations in the marketplace where the portfolio says, no, 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 this is really good, even in a drawdown, we will, we will get the vol. It will come. The second question for our trend follower for advanced trend, we tend not to be as aggressive. We understand what that sharp ratio is. We understand its role in our portfolios. We have trend in all of the portfolios that we run. We do think it's a really interesting um, and great diversifying return stream on a standalone basis, but also for our program. So just to put it in perspective. Um, So, you know, we don't do as much with that one. Um, we tend to let it, we tend to let it be. We know what the, we understand what the, are the long-term, uh, benefits to that. And what are the long-term drawdowns to that? <laughs> and, you know, we were willing to accept them. The question about retiring strategies is a really interesting one to us. We are a firm with tens of thousands of strategies as it turns out. So it's really fun and some have been making money forever. Some are brand new. So it's a really fun and interesting question. We tend to think about it in a couple different ways. Imagine a strategy that's made money for 10 straight years. You believe in the alpha concept, and then it gets Trump night wrong. It has a huge drawdown. So you have a perfectly up and right return stream, realized return stream, and, 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 and then it gets Brexit wrong. And then, boom, it has a steep drawdown. You might look at that and say, oh, my gosh, you just wiped out last three years of returns. Um, you know, it had such a good sharp, but now this rolling one-year, two-year, three-year sharps are all negative. You know, uh, um, I think sometimes that a strategy like that can have a lot of scrutiny. But I'll tell you the truth. We tend not to touch them to not down allocate them we tend to leave them just as they are because getting unlucky and i i recognize that's a tricky statement i just said there but getting unlucky is not alphas dead okay so like for us we would differentiate between a strategy that has a really nice strong track record and had even a very very steep loss against the following kind a strategy that's been making money and then it just starts rolling and suddenly you're one year flat, two years flat, slightly negative, three years, four years. If you think about how the shape of that, for us, we would believe a lot more that that has a deterior- an alpha deterioration factor that we are not, that we don't understand. And probably, number one, that strategy would definitely get down allocated. I will tell you, we tend to be strategy collectors, not strategy destroyers, um, because you never know when a concept might want to pop back up again. or you found an improvement that deals with that deterioration but that one tends to be a little more eye-opening to us it's distinctly on our list of things that we look at i just want to add one thing the caveat to that is the following and you mentioned 2016 17 low vol period just a second ago i, I want to point out something when you're doing almost any type of trade any, you know, managed futures all had a tr- struggle during that period there just wasn't much action right and so the question is If you're in a market environment where you expect that strategy to struggle a little bit and you have a flattening like that, which was a kind of a long flattening, frankly, year or so, a little bit longer than a year, maybe, you know, I think you have to accept that as part of the program. Now, you may want to design strategies that make money in that situation. Fine. Good idea. But I think you have to be a little bit careful if you have a strategy that's that's leveling off in terms of alpha in an environment that you would know is the weakness of that environment. If you're not happy with your overall portfolio performance, well then goodness gracious, go back to the research department, right? Because yeah, okay, I get it, sure. But the reality is is that we will be a little bit circumspect when we have a strategy underperform in a market environment where we don't expect it to perform well. And so we have to be, you have to be very careful about leveling off of alphas. You know, we really had, you know, even if you think about 2022, uh, t- sorry, 2020, think May 2020, through all of 2021. It was about 18 months of falling vol. Now VIX didn't fall, so people don't talk about it as much, but on a realized basis it was a pretty boring period, right? Bonds stop moving, yen start moving stop moving, euro stop moving. Everyone thinks, "Oh, didn't Nasdaq move in 2021?" Yeah, Nasdaq. Go look at Russell Russell was flat go look at the Nikkei, flat go look at the euro stocks flat okay so you know suddenly when you think about 2021 or that pretty long period of time and are like oh trend falling didn't do so well maybe I should get rid of the portfolio you know some people made that decision you know made that decision and they missed 2022 and I think when you think about a strategy or an you know overall portfolio you really have to think about what are you geared to make money in and what happens when you don't have that environment should you be so upset should we would be yelling and screaming in our office make it better make it better or should we be a little bit circumspect about what we do for a living here. You know, what our jobs are because if you were to get rid of all the strategies that underperformed during a pretty dull period of time that was 18 months long in 2020 and 2021, well you wouldn't have been around for 2022. And so I think it's really important. Anyway, it's a long answer to a short question, but we tend to be circumspect about it. Short answer. <laughs>
2: Now, I want to talk about three things that um, they kind of go together to some extent. And it's kind of interesting because you are a little bit different than many other uh, uh, of of our peers. And I'm talking about capacity fees and flows because in my mind, you were actually one of few firms that in the last couple of years, you know, had, you know, in in a sense, you you came up with um, uh, towards your capacity in some of the shorter term strategies, while trend followers... The way I recall it probably had a little bit of a capacity issue after 08 because a lot of people came into the strategy. Maybe that was the reason why uh, we as an industry didn't do so well, although it's certainly not entirely that reason. Then people redeem from trend following and there was suddenly a lot of capacity released. So we came up with this brilliant idea as an industry to say, well, we should just offer trend following incredibly cheap. And so we had a lot of money, not a lot of money, but over time, a lot of money came back, especially from some big pension funds where they could get some really good deals. You, of course, have a flat fee, as I recall it, uh, for the trend side. But what I'm hearing sort of um, in, in in my uh, conversations offline is that some managers are now starting to think about, hmm, well, clearly there's demand. Clearly we've made money. We have more AUM now. And perhaps we don't like the fact that we have so much of our AUM, in certainly in the trend space, tied up in very low fee-paying uh, mandates. So we're going to give back some of that to the clients and so we can replace it with higher fee money how do you think about um capacity fees could we and this is my hope i guess could we even enter a period where fees might go up again and we don't have to defend um fees uh, as much as we've had to uh, what what are your thoughts
0: yeah it's a <clears throat> it's an interesting question it's a great question um i think a couple couple of things I've made peace with the fact that the fees have come down and um, I actually, I, I coined a little term for us internally at Crable. I called it the mutual fundization of the fees in hedge funds. And because the reality is, is if you think back 20 years ago, you know, to get an S and P replicator, you need, you're going to pay 1% per year. You're going to pay a broker and maybe shoot. It may even be more than that. Right? I mean, goodness gracious. And now you pay t- two basis points. OK, well, um, the truth is, is that the fees to do simple things have come down to rock bottom when it comes to mutual funds. The things that are harder to do and are more expensive, think emerging market debt. You better have some good researchers on that, right? Think about emerging market debt, it's trickier, you know, um, you, you know they charge higher, higher fees. My thought about hedge funds is that the fees will, should, will continue to come down for the simplest concepts. Things are the most easily found will end up with lower fees and i think there's just a reality about that now the cool thing about our space and think about all the great players out there in, in our space. I think that our ability to innovate and do things that are different and interesting, the more we are able to do that. And I don't even want to name a bunch of my competitors, but you know, they, they are, they're doing it too. Um, the more we are able to do that, the more you can charge a premium for your services. And I think, um, you know, I think so to your question there, if you're asking me, what's the overall hedge fund fee going to do, I think it's going to keep going down. And then if you ask me the question, what are the, the best alpha shops? What's going to happen to their fees? I think the answer is up. Um, now, do I think when I, mean, I think about it from Crable's perspective, you know, do I think there's a world in which we're going to redeem people and only accept new high fees? No, I, I just don't see it for us. You know, I really we really love the clients that support us. Um, you know, we <clears throat> we have the business a lot because of them um, and that's an important partnership and relationship so no i don't see us you know trying to return money and take on more higher fee money um obviously you can um not discount or you know maybe raise fees as you go forward as you um maybe get redemptions and that that's i think is fine but it's not something that we're like really looking to do we're really happy with the clients we have we're happy with the products we're able to, to produce and maintain um, and i think again you know if you think about all the most successful hedge funds in general, the ones that have been able to charge the most fees, think Renaissance Technologies just for a second. You know they got to raise their fees, raise their fees, raise their fees, and kick everyone out. Okay, you know what? Like, good for them. Um, I don't think that I'm not sure our space is ever going to see something like what they did again. It, um, it, it's a miraculous. And when, when I look at them, but you know the truth is is that the more alpha you can provide, the more interesting return stream that you can create. The more likely you will be able to charge a little bit of a premium based on what the industry is doing.
2: Yeah, no, I think that that's fair. Now, final question on on this topic was the thing about flows, and I think a lot of people might. Believe that uh, when you have a great year for our industry, a lot of people, a lot of money will flow into it. So that may still be the case, but so far that's not my observation. At least I think that perhaps it might even be the the other way around. As we know from 2008, a lot of people used CTAs uh, as an ATM. Um, maybe there's a little bit of that this time around, although for different reasons. I think it's probably more rebalancing than it was really uh, kind of managing crises. Uh, Agreed. But who, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But what what's your what, what, I mean what what's your observation about flows, but also do you have any any um expectations about flows as we head into the new year?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. For the
2: industry, it doesn't have to be specifically to you, but just kind of general speaking as well.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed it there, Niels. First of all, let me just point out I think you nailed it. Um we did see outflows despite good performance in the latter the last six months of twenty twenty-two. It was at first surprising and then the more we talked to clients it wasn't like oh michael we hate you we're redeeming it was like michael our stocks are down 30 our bonds are down 15 and now we have an imbalanced portfolio because our mandate is 10 to alternatives oh no by the way in alternatives we got a bunch of private equity uh and private debt uh and infrastructure and wait what happened to those last year i don't know (laughs) Uh, they didn't go down despite the fact that they should have oh okay so the thing that made money alternatives futures yeah we all made money that's great and then but now where do they take the money away from and you know you, it's like people forget about the 20 2008 situation which is like if pension funds need to re- rebalance their portfolios which i think they absolutely have to right now where is the money coming from well it's not coming from private equity so um i think that i my um i made a prediction for our firm that we would see continued outflows into the end of this year at, at end of 2022 but that, there is that other side, which you also mentioned, which is something like, what's the lag between good performance and people being able to onboard a new, how can, they, it doesn't take one day, right, With due diligence, it's, it's, it's something like a 12 to 18 month sales cycle, we do, we think that the the, the AUM increases in this particular case will be on a bit of a lag, um, we do expect, I do expect inflows for credible management, I expect inflows for the industry. Once all the clients get rebalanced, and then, then we see, okay, oh yeah, this is what managed future this is the advantage of being in managed futures this is what CTAs are good at I think I hopefully for those who had either stepped away from the space like think CalPERS they stepped away from the space a few years ago. Maybe they see that benefit again. Maybe they say, okay, you know what? Let's rethink this. Let's make sure we have a balanced portfolio. Let's make sure we have strategies like this. And it's not just all private equity. Um, I think that, that you will see the flows. in. so, my, my general statement is 2023 is an inflow year, even if you still have a few of the pension funds who are on diff- maybe different fiscals that still need to rebalance the portfolio. And hey, that's part of being in the business. And it's okay when they call you up and tell you they're rebalancing because they need to put more money in stocks and bonds because that makes their portfolio balance right and they're hitting their target allocation how can you be mad you know what they're saying thank you so and you're and you're and you're proud that you made the money you know oftentimes you're talking about a teacher's retirement system of name the state and you know how proud it makes me feel to make money for the teachers very it's so cool what what a great thing so you know you can't get too mad at that you just have to roll with it be
3: be prepared you know so i'm excited for the future to say that out loud
2: yeah no uh, absolutely, Alan. Your last uh, round of questions before I wrap up.
3: Yeah, so I mean, you're talking about the kind of the allocator perspective, how how they're kind of looking at their portfolios now, which which kind of you know brings up the point about you know where did the different kind of uh, portfolios programs you run, where they fit, the role that they play in kind of a, a multi-asset portfolio and asset allocation plan. So I mean, what are your thoughts on that? In the sense, you know, obviously. They're presumably in the absolute return buckets. Often, a lot of these allocators have have buckets, and you know, as a, you, you, you're not just competing against uh, the other short-term manager up the street, you're, you're competing against all manner of different hedge fund strategies and uh, you know, privates, all of this stuff. But I mean, to be more specific, would you see your kind of your your, your multi-strat, multi-product product? Would you see that as a just as an absolute return product, or is it a? portfolio protection or is it you know and then is it a return generator or a diversifier or both when you're positioning those products um in front of a of an asset allocator like that what's the positioning
0: yeah i think you know we do see that as absolute returns for all of our major products they are absolute return oriented that's the way we think about them you know per your point there a lot of times people do think about us and a number of our clients do think about this they put us in yeah this crisis risk offset style bucket um you know what i get it you know and we we don't necessarily design it exactly for that concept we design it for alphas let's make money first and foremost you have to make money but i think that as it turns out the return stream like lends itself well and i think kind of like circling back on it I, i do think it's um you know it is important to think about that balance portfolio in fact i i was having dinner um in december with a competitor large competitor yeah, I actually don't think of our, I, I don't think of it as being, I don't feel it like, oh my Colleagues, gosh, they're gonna win all the money colles. or we are, right? <laughs> I exactly. just don't feel that way. Um, I, I really like to be friends with the competitors. I, I do like the majority of them, all of them um, in our space. Most of us are trying really hard to do well for the clients. When we all do well, the clients do well, it gives, it's our space does better, There's, there will be assets for us at all. It's fine. I, was, I sat down at dinner and I asked him, I said, hey, his name happens to be Michael as well. I said, Michael, um, you know, what would you do with your life if you weren't doing this? And he said, you know what, I'd want to work at a pension fund so that I could really ha- help You know, create great portfolios that are diversified thoughtfully not just for liquidity reasons, but also for return purposes, because you could help that state or you could help the teachers. And I, I thought that was a wonderful answer, a great answer to that question. Because oftentimes, Alan, you know, kind of circling back on this question, it, it gets confusing, right? Like, hey, you have to answer to a board when stocks are up 37% and your bond portfolio is up 10. Hey, that's hard to answer when your when your trend followers are flat, you know, when your your diversifiers didn't have a lot of alpha that year. And and I get it, you know, it's like line item by line item by line item. It takes balls of steel you know to sit there and see <laughs> sorry um you know to see a negative return year or a flat return year when the portfolio is making 30 plus percent but you know what you have to be able to be circumspect about it and think to the future and i think when we think about it yeah yes do i happen to believe that there's some crisis risk offset kind of like we talked about earlier being a little bit long ball it's it's helpful it's helpful it's not perfect but it's helpful
3: uh- and you say, I mean, the other thing is like sometimes people think, well, yeah, short-term traders they are long vol, you know, they have that long vol characteristic more so than trend. So then, does that put you into being compared against tail risk, uh, volatility traders? You know, are are you do you fall into that bucket a, a little bit more, or, or do you kind of kind of dissuade allocators from thinking about it in, the, in those terms?
0: yeah dissuade is the short answer (laughs) um i think though (laughs) i think generally speaking though i think people really do think of us if you got if you brought 10 our 10 largest clients on here i'm going to tell you that they all think of us as a diversifier they don't spend a lot of time thinking about us as being in some other tail hedgy sort of like space but again i think that they like in like the return stream itself lends itself to at least helping in that case and i think that's helpful for them um and so but no i i think squarely you know even though short-term futures is a little bit idiosyncratic in our in the cta space um i still think we kind of get lumped in and so when trend followers are doing well sometimes people even ask us you know maybe uh, one year trend does well and short-term doesn't do so well and they'll say like wait wait it didn't didn't futures do really well this year and you're like well yeah trend following did well that's why you should have a diversified portfolio by the way um but you know short-term futures didn't get the quite the opportunity set that trend following did that happens i mean that's why they're a good our multiproducts product zero-correlated trend. That's why they're a good complement to each other. Jamie, Gemini.
3: Just one final one for me. I re- realize we're going a bit over on time. But it, as you're a short-term manager, I think this one is important, uh, around liquidity. And uh, we, we always hear in markets concerns about liquidity. And you, know, you see some crazy moves, and everybody says, oh, my god. The liquidity market isn't what it used to be Um, and then people are saying oh you know you talked about the basis risks in uh, in treasuries in march 2020 and you know there's an ongoing discussion going on between janet yellow and the industry around that you know and, and even earlier this year we had crazy moves in sterling and then in the gilt market and you know they seemed crazy at the time but obviously we've seen these kind of moves in the past i mean so what's your perspective as 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 a participant who's very close to the liquidity is it better worse any different to what it's been historically
0: yeah Uh, i think it's important how we frame this, and, I, and I'm gonna tell you why. The headlines are all exactly what you're saying. The headlines are liquidity is shit. Uh, markets have become less and less liquid. Um, you know what? You know what's going on. All the market makers are backing away. Um, you know the the participants are leaving. The banks no longer have the prop desks. So they're also not in there making markets. Yeah, I I, I hear it. I hear it. I hear it. Um, and, and you know, there was actually a piece put out by JP Morgan literally like two weeks ago or a week ago or something like that saying that this is historically one of the lowest liquidity periods for, say, S&P futures that we've seen. And they showed some pretty charts. And, yeah, I get, I get it. I get it. I hear you. Okay. But let's start back over again. If you're talking about pure liquidity and now you're asking the market makers to stand in, think about this as a notional, gross notional basis, right? I'm going to quote the S&P futures by 50 by 50 inside, okay, and now you triple the vol. I could triple the vol. What if I couldn't tuple the vol? You think I can quote 50 50 50 by 50 uh, inside bid ask on the ES futures? No way. So in my opinion, the popular media generally gets it wrong. Even people that are smart like JP Morgan they get it wrong because they don't vol adjust. If you vol adjust the book and look at it through time, there might be a small decline in the liquidity. But in truth, we trade tens of millions of futures contracts. We're one of the largest futures traders in the world because we have high assets and we have short-term trading, which turns over a lot, right? So we trade a lot, And, and, and the way you would see low liquidity is you would see high slippage. Well, for us, for crypto Management, 22 to 22 was our lowest slippage year ever. Well, how'd that happen? Are we just that good at it? Well, yeah, sure. I think we're pretty good at it. But are we just that good at it? No. The truth is that there was a lot of volatility and the volat- like volatility adjusted liquidity was there you know, for us. Now, look, I, I do want to point something out. If you go to 2020, go to March, I think it was the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Having seen 08, you know, the markets were pretty tight in 08. Now, they were less liquid, obviously. But I would say that if you look at NASDAQ in 2008, you would have seen a light book. But it was pretty, it was still pretty tight. Fast moving, but it was 08. It was a long time ago, right? Fast forward to 2020. And like, not only was the book light, but I actually thought the spreads we saw for, for points not one tick, not four ticks, four points wide on S&P, four points wide on NASDAQ. I thought that was, that was the most unusual thing I had seen in the marketplace. Do I think that that's an adaptation by the market makers, read high frequency traders. Do I think that's an adaptation by the market makers to the modern world and an adjustment to the volatility we were seeing in March, 2020, which was incredible as we all know. Yes. And do you have to live with that environment? Yes. So I guess what I'm saying is to the popular media out there and to like, people who just want to complain about it, um, fine, I get you. Even the JP Morgan guys, you know, they're listening to this and they, they hear me because do that study over again, but volatility adjust it. And you'll find out that there's just as much sort of volatility. So we've you're trying to get like one standard deviation of, of ES on, you can get the same amount of standard deviation that you've ever been able to get. So let's start over with that,
2: that discussion. Good point. Now, the final question will actually be two questions because you, again, have two hats. You have a short-term hat, you have a trend-following hat. You also promised before, I I don't know if you promised, but before we pressed record, you said, I can be very controversial. So here's your chance, Michael, because I don't think you've been that controversial yet. But I wanted to ask you, and so it's a two-part question, what is the one thing you hear about short-term trading or the one thing you hear about trend-following that you disagree with the most? Um, One thing I would say that
0: I disagree with wholeheartedly, um, and this view has been around for a while and it really bothers me, which is that we've been in meetings maybe with prospective clients and they will say, you know, um, we can't trust you and your return stream because... You know, it's, you know, out of sample, we don't know what's going to happen. You guys make changes all the time. You know, you need to be a set it and forget it shop like this other shop over here and I really feel like that's a misunderstanding of, of the alphas and ability to extract anomalies from the marketplace fundamentally. And when I hear someone say that, I do feel, and this in particular was related to trend following, um, and it's come up a few, Not this comes up like every year or something like that, not just not one time, where it's like, oh, trend follower XYZ just sets it and forget it, and then like they make money forever, and I can trust them. I can't trust you guys, because you guys are making changes. OK, sure, no problem. Just compete I I'll, I'll I'll take that bet. Let's go. Me against those people, Krable against those people. We'll take that bet any day of the week uh, because we do feel like we'd make improvements. We are looking for alphas. You know, I talked about our trend file. we try to expose ourselves a little bit more using alpha concepts to trend, you know, and and it's it's worked out okay for us, you know? So, I think that when I hear that from people this idea that you can't improve or because you because you're improving your portfolio, I can't trust the out of sample returns. Man, look at the long history of our firm. Look at the long history of the space. You know, um, it, 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 overall, you want to keep improving. People who didn't improve or didn't hey, we were all in business when John Henry was was running all the money too. Remember that? Well, he didn't change anything ever. He kept his vol. You know, he let his vol move around a lot. As you guys remember, who doesn't love John Henry, by the way? I mean, you know, he shows up at Moneyball. Like, good for him, right? But also he kind of gave us a bad name, you know? Because he sort of thought like, oh, set it, forget it, it's over, trend forever. Um, I don't think they have a product anymore. I don't know if they do or don't, but I certainly don't hear about them. Um, and I like John Henry. He's clearly a smart guy. Um, so yeah. anyway, that's probably one thing I hear the other thing I think for the short term space that I, that really sometimes and I'm not sure this is controversial or not, but, uh, um, you, you know, they say like, well, you know, you guys have a long vol and uh, S&P went down two and a half percent yesterday and you lost money. And, and sometimes we'll get clients who really will call, call us up and ask us about that. And you know, and the short answer is, is like, you know, it's path dependent. We are not perfect. You clearly know that if we were perfect, the fees would be a lot higher. <laughs> or maybe you wouldn't be managing client money at all. So let's be honest with each other about what we're doing. Yeah, we have a long vol bent. That's true. It's positively skewed. That's true. But you're not going to get every single day the market moves down 2.5% right. You may come in with the wrong position going in from the day before. For alpha concepts, especially in the short term, it matters a lot about the path and you know, a market that gyrates a lot intraday and then closes up two and a half percent, you may not get that day particularly right. It might be a losing day because, by the way, you control risk on an intraday basis. We control it very carefully. And so I think that's one thing I'd say is, hey, we're not gonna get every, just because we have a long vol profile doesn't mean we're gonna get every single day right. But but
2: you know overall, the preponderance of evidence should be in our favor. Look at the long track record. Um, so you know, there's die too. Okay, no, that's fair. That's fair. On that note, we're going to wrap up this uh, fascinating conversation. Michael, thank you so much for being on the podcast and for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. We hope that we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from our conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders & as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find on the website. And not least, take care of yourself and take care
1: of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.